following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. That was Steelhearted Annie by Penelope Swales about women who just don't take being bullied. So we thought that was quite appropriate <laughs> for this morning. And we are back in studio live with Ginger Gorman, who is a multi-award winning social justice radio and print journalist, cyber hate expert and the best-selling author of Troll Hunting. She's also the editor of Broad Agenda 5050 for 2030. And she can tell you a little bit more about that later in the show. So uh, Ginger's also the host of the Seriously Social podcast and has interviewed everybody from eminent scientists and artists to hardened criminals and vicious internet trolls. So that's mostly what we're going to be discussing today. And also, hopefully, Ginger will give us some insight and some uh, wonderful things she's doing working with folks in the media to help them as well. So welcome to the show, Ginger. It's a real pleasure to have you in with us this morning. And you've dealt with that horrible traffic out there. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And what a lovely introduction as well. It's a pleasure to be here. So we at um, Behind the Lines really like to get to know our guests as human beings, as people, which is, I think, what you were trying to do when you reached out to some of the the trolls that you mentioned in your book was to to humanise yourself. And we would love to um, have our listeners get to know a little bit more about you. So little Ginger, five-year-old Ginger, (laughs) did she always want to be a journalist or a writer? Do you know, it's so funny. My dad was a diplomat and so we lived in London when I was five. We moved there and my favourite toys were this Fisher-Price tape recorder where you could record yourself or other people's voices and play it back and I just thought this was the most incredible thing ever. And the other thing was... Dad gave me this also Fisher-Price typewriter and I broke it because I used it so much. And then he went and bought me, this was the 80s, of course, because I'm old. Uh, He went and bought me a proper German typewriter and I had it till very recently and I just typed and typed and typed and typed. And, you know, with the old typewriters, when you made a mistake, you had to use wide out or start again so it always had wide out on the little screen and I was always running out the ink ribbons and it was crazy because he kept them for me and actually not that long ago he's passed away now but he gave them back to me and said these were your favorite toys as a kid and these made you a journalist so I don't know whether I consciously wanted to but I definitely had it in In the the making yeah. yeah I loved a story I always loved a story So you were always a storyteller. I think that's innate. Most journalists are curious creatures by nature. So it's the curiosity and the desire to tell a story. I'm very sociable. And also we lived in a lot of third world countries. So the first place I went to when I was six weeks old was Pakistan. Later, we lived in Thailand. And I had a very strong sense of injustice. And I could really see in those countries that some people were not treated as fairly as other people and also came from a Holocaust family. So I think that those things together made me always concerned about how people treated each other and how in society we can treat each other more fairly. So I had that very strong sense from an early age and so I think all those things together probably (laughs) eventually turned me into journalist. I have to say, though, I'm from a very shouty family where people don't listen to each other. So that's been a long (laughs) time. Uh, That's taken a long time for me to learn the skills of really, really listening, which both of you would know when you work in radio. That's the key thing 
is actually not jumping in. It's sitting back and really listening. <laughs> so that active listening principle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean you often hear this. Like when I used to produce on the ABC, it drives me mental where the presenter would tell you everything they knew about the topic and then say, isn't it, Zena? <laughs> you know, and you're nothing, you've got nothing left to say. So, yep. yeah, <laughs> that real hard listening skill, I think, has taken me a long ter- time to learn, like giving those conversations space. And, you know, we're guessing here, but I'm assuming we're all Gen X in the, in the studio here today. <laughs> I was born in 76, uh, yeah, yes. So I used to work in print and for newspaper for a regional New South Wales newspaper in the days before the internet. And we used typewriters and we had typesetters. And, and I'm just wondering what it was like for you, you know, growing up as a journalist without the internet and then having to have this experience you've gone through recently because of the internet. Yeah, so I started out, my very first proper media job was at Fairfax Community Newspapers on the outskirts of Melbourne. And we did just have the internet. So I think that there was one terminal in the room that you could use if you asked permission and you had the dial-up tone and everything. Uh, And, yeah, it really was very... Uh, manual in a way (laughs) and I've always been a terrible speller as well so that was really hard you had to type your copy without being able to google the spellings of words and things and I had a dictionary there you know and I had a thesaurus there as well and I remember getting screamed at by the sub-editors when I I spelled Q the wrong way I put C-U-E because I was in a rush instead of Q-U-E-U-E so that kind of thing yeah so it was very manual it was kind of just coming in at that point look I think when my family and I got targeted by internet trolls so we became the subjects of an orchestrated online hate campaign in 2013 that was really before trolling took a hold in Australia. Like it was happening in other countries, but people still at that stage, when you'd say I've been trolled, they wouldn't know what it was. Yeah, and certainly the ABC at that point when that happened, I was working for the ABC, they did not understand what it could mean and how dangerous and damaging it could be. So, yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a big jump, isn't it, from that period where you didn't actually use the internet even for your work to that point where we're so embedded with it now, aren't we? You can't really live without the internet. Like the United Nations just recognised internet access as a human right. So, wow. yeah, it's a big jump. Yeah. Yeah, so you did a story just part of your, your journalist sort of job um, and later on these couple of guys turned out to be pedophiles and they got in the news again as a, a, a great big story and and what happened after that? Well, so the I'll just give you a tiny bit of backstory, Scotty, because that's absolutely right. So I was based in far north Queensland in 2010 and I was – the drive presenter there and it was a big gig for me it was my first real proper show that I had owned in a weekday time slot and as I said always being interested in human rights I did this series about LGBTIQ plus people and the way that they were treated in their everyday lives and this was not today tonight these were feature articles about the experiences these people were having in these communities some of them very violent and damaging and one of the stories I did was about this gay couple 
Mark Newton and Peter Truong, who told me that they had had this child via surrogacy in Russia. So by all intents and purposes, this beautiful story, I went to their home on the northern beaches in Cairns. I spent a lot of time with that family beautiful little boy and this story was broadcast on a lot of ABC stations and posted online and then yes I came back to Canberra was on maternity leave with my second child and those two men got arrested tried and convicted as members of an international paedophile ring and this little boy had been purchased from his Russian mother he was not a relative of either man and had been horrendously abused by them from the time he was two weeks old so (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that, this is such a hard story for me to still grapple with because mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with this little boy and I just was thinking, you know, I could have saved him if I knew, but I didn't know. And so what happened then was that I just became target of this international hate mm-hmm. campaign. Conservatives in the US got hold of it. They do. They did what is very common now but was not that common at that time, which is incite. A pylon. So they were one particular journalist in the US was asking people to shame me. And then we just got torrents and torrents of cyber hate. We got a death threat, which was absolutely terrifying. And a kind of combination of stuff made it absolutely terrifying. So the fact that my family were Holocaust survivors and we found a picture of our family at that time on a, a Nazi hate website with all this vile stuff under it. And then we got the death threat and I realised, because I wasn't very techie, that our house was geolocated on Google Maps on Twitter. So the combination of getting these threats and realising that anyone could actually find your house and come and kill you if they wanted to, uh, and at that time I had two tiny little babies, was just, I can't explain the fear of that, but that was terrifying. And even worse, you know, I rang the police and they just didn't know. Like they, nobody seemed to know the level of the threat at that point. And I found that even worse. Like, are they really coming to get me? Are they actually going to kill me and my kids? Or is that just in fairyland? And I know now after researching this for years and years and years, yes, you can get killed because of this stuff. So it wasn't in my imagination at all. There was an interview that you did I listened to in the last couple of days about, um, I believe it was a female colleague who was also being trolled and she had a horse and they were threatening to yeah. harm her horse and then something happened, right? So, you know, I think one of the interesting things, Zena, is we imagine mm. that stuff on the internet happens in a kind of fairyland. Even the word virtual makes you feel like mm. it's not real. And mm. once I started to report on this stuff, that's all I wanted to do was show the real life links between online predation and real life harm. And so in the course of writing my book, that was really the thesis I had. I want to show the real life harm. And I was very concerned increasingly about misogyny online, the way female journalists were being silenced and driven out of these spaces. And in fact, in a lot of cases, being forced to quit their jobs or not report on really important stories. Mm. So I contacted Cheryl Moody, who is this amazing woman. She's a news cop journalist, but she also runs the Red Heart campaign. She's very concerned with stopping gendered violence. And so really I was interviewing her about the kind of misogyny she cops online and the real-life consequences for her. And in the course of me interviewing her, a couple of days after I'd done my first interview, I got an email from her. She was very distressed and she said someone threatened to kill my horse and then someone did kill her horse. And 
I, I mean, I just was so shocked by that. But in fact, that was not the first time that kind of thing had happened to her. She'd had to put security cameras all around her house. A year earlier, someone had given her dog acid and burned out the hole inside of her dog's mouth. So this is a story that I tell because it's so horrific and so graphic, but it's very clear that the online harm has a real-life consequence and no one ever has ever really helped her with that. No one has ever really taken those threats that seriously or been able to try to solve who has done that. So, yeah, that's a really clear way that we can see of the, the kind of harm that's being caused all the time, you know. And the very real nature of, you know, how often we're told words can't hurt you. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. This this is sort of taking it to the next level, right? Where Although we know that that's not true, right? Because yeah. if you think historically of genocide, so yeah. let's take the Nazi genocide of the Jews or the genocide that happened in Rwanda, you know... These types of things, they don't start with people being murdered. They start with words and propaganda. So, in fact, we do understand that words hurt people and that's why we have laws against race, hate speech and so forth. So if we think about it hard enough, we do understand it. The reality gap is where if somebody said to me in the IGA, I'm going to kill your kids and cut your uterus out, I could call the cops and mm-hmm. something would happen. But if I go to the police and or even the platforms and try to report that this has happened mm-hmm. online, the likelihood is nothing will happen. So the problem we have is understanding that online is real life. Like if you order your groceries today online, they come in real life. You know, there's no difference. Or if you apply for a job online, you can get it in real life. So we need to start understanding there's not really a difference in the terms of the threat. In fact, I would argue the threat is worse because it's omnipresent and you can connect with a lot of other hateful people very fast and spread awful messages fast. You know, we saw what happened in the Capitol building in the US. You can really easily incite hatred. Yes, yes. Now, and I imagine most people would just sort of hunker down and go, oh, my God, and hope it blows over. <laughs> How did you react to all of this? <laughs> Why are you such a freak show? Look, I have had so many people say, what on earth were you doing? You know, like it, it is a bit bonkers, I admit, to want to get right in there. I guess, Scotty, at that time I was just seeing female journalists attacked not just in Australia but all over the globe. And at that time when I wanted to go out and meet these guys and they're mostly guys, my ABC colleagues were getting rape threats, death threats, pictures of beheaded women in their inbox. (laughs) Tracy Spicer, who's a friend of mine, you know, she got such serious threats she was afraid to come home from holiday at one point. She was scared (laughs) for her children. So I just started to think, you know... Who are these people? Why would you send someone you don't know a death threat? What is actually causing this? And I suppose I was thinking about all that stuff that's important to me, you know, which is why are people being treated like this? Why is this happening? And a lot of people like people like feminist Clementine Ford would say things like they want power or they want this or they are that. And I was thinking, how do you know? How do you know what they want and who they are unless you ask them? And, in fact, they are not who anybody thought. 
you know, they are very, very different in profile. Apart from being young, white, angry men, there's a lot of things. Pretty much everything mm-hmm. I thought about them was wrong once I went to meet them and I got embedded in those communities. Yeah, so how do you get embedded in a troll community? <laughs> do you know what the craziest thing about the whole story is that they weren't actually afraid of meeting me. I thought, you know, this is going to be hard. Like a lot of people I want to speak to in my work as a social justice journalist, they don't really want to talk to you. If you're trying to ask someone why they murdered someone, which I've done previously, or you're trying to work out why does somebody self-harm, those People don't want to talk to you, really. That's hard work. Mm. These guys really did want to talk to me immediately. Mm. Like I put this call out on social media and I thought this is never going to work, you know. Immediately I had men contacting me saying, contact this guy, contact this guy. So very quickly I was connected to huge international online trolling syndicates, which, again, I didn't know existed. And they wanted to talk. And it took me a long time to understand this. So I was thinking... Like, I'm their hate match. So if this is a dating <laughs> app, I am their hate match. I am, at that time, I was in a mixed race marriage. They hate that. Uh, I'm essentially Jewish. They hate that. They don't like white women. They don't like journalists. They don't like people who are left wing. Like, I was all the things, right? So <laughs> I would think that they'd run in the opposite direction. But actually, what I realized after a while is two things. They consider themselves to be marginalised. So these are people that feel unheard, which is really interesting to come to grips with as a feminist because you think that young white men are the top of the food chain and these guys are not. These, If you want a shorthand for it, these people consider themselves to be white trash. So they, are, they would say that to you too. They're from very poor economic circumstances, often very violent, very damaged upbringing, very isolated and they wanted to talk to me to be heard. Also, they want their story written down. So what I didn't understand as well going in is that they have a whole history and a whole law like L-O-R-E and they wanted that documented. So they actually had a really strong impetus to talk to me. And after a while when they realised I was listening, they really trusted me. So they talked and talked and talked and it was the opposite. Like they would not shut up. I would have to silence the apps on my phone because it was like ding, 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 ding. And they're coming from all over the world at this point, right? Yeah, so the main – I was mainly embedded with about six guys, but, yeah, their syndicates are international. A couple of them were Australian uh, but mostly in the United States, yes, and very different in profile as well. Like some of the guys really would be predator trolling, so going out to harm other people, and some of the guys were doing – more like what I would consider to be really sophisticated Mm -hmm. pranks, like trolling Wikipedia and Mm. things like that. Very bright, mostly, very well-educated, like they'd self-educated, a lot Mm. of them. One of them had read all the Mm. feminist texts, very right-wing but wanted to debate all that stuff Mm -hmm. with me, so not at all who I thought. Mm. Not alone, not in their mum's basement, Mm -hmm. you know, and not doing it for stupid means, like really having thought through in a very sophisticated way what they were doing it and why they were doing it. Mm. Did you get a sense of their motivation, their primary motivation? So it's not one thing. There's Trolling is a real spectrum of behaviour. So I'm not even anti-trolling, <laughs> which might surprise you. So at one end is very mild pranks, funny stuff, like Rick rolling. Mm-hmm. 
where yep. you click on a link of Wigastly <laughs> and it's, you know, that song, Never Gonna Give You Up. Like some trolling's very funny. I've seen very funny trolling of Pauline Hansen, for example, <laughs> that's just poking fun at her, making a point. <laughs> but that extreme end is related <laughs> to hate crime. So some of them really did want to go out and do harm. Like there's a psychopath <laughs> in my book, Mark, who really <laughs> wanted to get people killed and took pleasure in that. And then others, like Meep Sheep, who I actually became quite good friends with, he was really concerned with pranking the media because mm. he felt that they very, very left-wing mm. and he didn't agree with that. But it hugely sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So they're not one thing um, and there's also very left-wing trolls, there's black trolls, there's white trolls, there's everybody in between, transgender mm-hmm. trolls, Um what we can say is that the research shows trolling is correlated to what they call the dark tetrad of personality traits. So it's psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism and sadism. But sadism is the strongest link. So that means they want to hurt you and they take pleasure from it. But that's, you know, that's a general kind of analysis although i've got to say like pretty much every troll i've interviewed left right whatever they do say that they're sadists they do say they want to hurt you and they take pleasure from it Mm. or they want to upset you Mm. yeah so i don't know if that answers your question yeah i think it's maybe even getting a little bit deeper and and what are they trying to get for themselves that leads them to join a trolling community like we all, we're all trying to get our needs met in some ways absolutely and sometimes you don't even know what your needs are right i mean uh, meep sheep who is one of the brightest people i've ever met in my life this young man i became friends with he described his childhood to me which was really revelatory and it was very similar to a lot of them said it's just what, what a lot of them said just he said it in this really articulate way you know he had had this incredibly violent childhood very neglected violent alcoholic mm-hmm. mother And he said, you grow up in emotional poverty and then you want to get the world back and treat the world the way that you feel that you've been treated. And therefore, you connect with other like-minded individuals online and you go out to do it together. And it's a sense of belonging, but it's also a sense of payback. So that was the most clearly I had it articulated mm-hmm. to me. But almost universally, these guys, the, the guys I was embedded with, young white men between 18 to 35, almost universally they would say that, like that they had these that sort of upbringing. And I think that's amazing actually because it's then if you think about these little boys being mm-hmm. treated like that and being neglected like that, that's a really key intervention mm-hmm. point in my mind. Like there are babies, there are kids mm-hmm. in our communities that are going mm-hmm. through this and they're going to hurt us later if we don't help them now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Was that, that chapter in your book you talk about the internet being the parent? Yes. Right, that, that lack of human intervention in the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we can be amazed about that. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I've got little kids mm-hmm. that are this kind of mm-hmm. age now, like mm-hmm. they're 8 and 11, and you think about the love that you give children at those ages mm-hmm. and the amount of a care and attention in a loving family. Mm-hmm. And then you think about someone like Meep Sheep, so isolated, so alone. Like he told me a story about his dad, basically, who was a pilot, a, a commercial I left him in the house at 10 years old with no food at all for a week and just left. You know, I mean... I don't think we can be amazed that if you're treating human beings like that, they're going to grow up full of hate and Mm -hmm. anger and hurt us later. So, yeah. 
it's a sad story in a way, but I also think it's a hopeful story because it became really clear to me what the problem was. You know, you can't let the internet parent children, like what Meep Sheep would then do as this little 10-year-old boy, super bright, get on the internet, get onto these forums, Reddit, mm-hmm. 4chan, N-chan, all these things, and imbibe these hateful mm-hmm. ideologies and become radicalised mm-hmm. into like white supremacy, misogyny, all this mm-hmm. stuff and be spat out as a troll a few mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. I just think that's really obvious mm-hmm. now that I know about it. Mm. Mm. So you're painting a picture of people who have been neglected and, and mistreated. And, and is, there a, is there a class connection too? Because we've got whole sections of our society that are routinely mistreated and, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such a great question. I would say yes from what I know, but I don't know enough. Mm. Like mm. I'm just a journalist. We almost need like longitudinal studies mm-hmm. on this stuff because I would say yes very much. Like there's one theory that, I read about there was an amazing paper that came out of the Pew Centre in the United States talking about trolling being a whole class of people who've always had to be silent because they're not in the they don't have the reins of the media in their hands and so forth. They and now because of the internet, the lid has been lifted off that pressure cooker. Yeah, everybody has a voice. Everybody yeah. is able to speak, and maybe we don't really want to hear what they have to say. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is a really great question, Scotty, and I think it's like for me, it's got a question mark over it still. Mm. I hope other people will take this up. And it is happening now, actually. There's a lot more research in the last few years about this stuff. So That's right. And I guess these people, like there's a, a book by Chris Hedges and Joe Sacco called Days of Destruction, Days of Result. And it, they take a trip through the USA to what they call the sacrifice zones, which are basically just zones where business has been allowed to do absolutely whatever it wants and just ruins the population there. Um, and... Yeah, that, that, these are the people who are so sick of the system, which is doing all this stuff to them, that they wind up voting for Trump. Was there a, a big lot of Trump supporters Definitely, in this? yes, definitely. So most of these guys, the American ones, were Trump-loving, gun-loving, woman-hating, you know, and you could actually understand it. Like if you spend as long as I spent, like hundreds of hours talking to someone like Meat Sheep, you can really understand how this eventuates. Like it's not an accident. So why are we ignoring those voices? Like would they be so angry if their voices were being ignored? Would they be so angry if the community was meeting their needs? I don't think they would. And I don't think you'd get this level of destruction either. Like the Christchurch massacre, I got flown to New Zealand not long mm-hmm. after that happened to kind of try to help explain what happened there. Was that just after your book came it out? It was, yes, yeah. and it was the most devastating experience because I already knew mm. that this stuff was happening and I was trying to stop mm. something like this happening. Mm. And when I gave evidence to the Senate hearings mm-hmm. into cyberbullying here in Canberra mm. in 2018, like I clearly remember, particularly Darren Hinch was in that mm. those hearings looking at me like I was out of my mind because I said this is connected to terrorism, this is connected to stalking, mm-hmm. assault and they just, I don't think they believed me. It just seemed, it was too early <laughs> for that piece of information. And once Christchurch happened, obviously mm. people started mm. paying attention, but it was too late. Like, yeah, so it, the book came out six weeks before mm-hmm. Christchurch and 
the Christchurch killer himself was not represented in my book, but all the behaviours he was doing and all the communities he was embedded in were discussed in my book, so all the context was there. Yeah. And not long after that, uh, a very similar crime was attempted in Norway. Someone tried to copy the Christchurch killing just outside Oslo, and I then flew to Norway. And, you know, I was just like in this, it was bonkers because like I'm just a fat mum in a headband picking up my kids from school pickup in, with coffee on me, you know. Like I had been for a year by myself embedded in these communities getting more and more unwell myself because it was so violent and so dark and just thinking what am I doing? Like is this important? Who's even going to read about this, you know? <laughs> So then to kind of be spat out into the Christchurch massacre mm -hmm. and what happened in Norway was just, yeah, I'm still not over it, actually. <laughs> My publisher keeps saying, with your next book, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. So, yeah, oh, sorry, I've forgotten what the question is now. I've gotten totally off track. I guess it's, it's looking at... Um, you know, this behaviour, which is people, a group of people, you know, it seems to be a group of young, angry white men who feel powerless That's in right. their lives and they're looking for a way to feel empowered. Absolutely. And, and, and they're encouraging each other to, to carry out acts that, feel them, that, that help them feel empowered. Yeah, and that mm -hmm. they can delight in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're very injured people. Like with the Christchurch mm -hmm. massacre, I read all of his posts or a lot of what he wrote in the lead up and there was this idea that he was a lone wolf, which he mm -hmm. wasn't. He was on these forums being egged on mm -hmm. by a cohort mm -hmm. and they were laughing about it beforehand, mm -hmm. encouraging him to do it and laughing about it as it was happening mm -hmm. live. So it wasn't something that came out of the air. Uh, the other thing is, though, it's not just men. I mean, the, the cohorts mm -hmm. I was embedded in were men. I have done stories, for example, with ABC Landline about extreme vegans mm -hmm. attacking farmers, producers, and a lot of these people were women mm -hmm. and they're attacking in both directions and the harms from that mm -hmm. were extreme as well, mm -hmm. like animals being killed and mm -hmm. things like this. So there are cohorts that we haven't investigated yet and I'm increasingly being sent screenshots of women um, doing extreme mm -hmm. trolling. So mm -hmm. it's not that I want to suggest it's just men, mm -hmm. but those cohorts are really mm -hmm. dangerous, the ones that are radicalised mm -hmm. terrorists essentially. Mm -hmm. And I also think mm -hmm. there's racism in there. Like I think if these were brown Muslims, ASIO mm -hmm. and so forth would have been on to this much mm -hmm. quicker. They were not looking because white supremacy is almost accepted in our yeah. society. Like if you listen to the dialogue in parliament and things often, it's very thinly veiled mm. racism and that filters mm. down. So we weren't looking mm. in the right places. Do you want to explain what a dog whistle is in this context? <laughs> um, well, uh, there are often times, which I presume is what you're talking about, where these cohorts are using specific language and phrases and actually signalling to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see this in politics. It's not just trolls that mm -hmm. do this. But so the Christchurch killer is a classic example. I read his entire manifesto. And it is a really, really clever document for what it's designed for. So... All through it, he's dog whistling to his cohort. He's using very specific phrases and memes which are used <laughs> in those communities. I only know them because I spent years in there and I would always be asking Meep Sheep, what does this mean? What is this? 
like there's a meme in there to do with a Navy SEAL, which if you came from the outside and read it, you think it's just nonsense, but it's actually a meme they use to signal to each other. So that's all through it. And am I allowed to swear? Uh, we are on daytime, so okay. maybe not. <laughs> so there's a te- technique they call called media effery and mm. they all use it and mm. it's all through this document mm. where they're trying to screw over the media and suck the media in. Mm. And he very cleverly used that all through that document. Mm. It was designed to suck the media mm. in and it did. Mm. Like the Daily Mail published that document in its entirety mm. and therefore brought more people to that ideology. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, far out when I went to New Zealand, I just um, I was mobbed mm-hmm. by the media. It was the most unreal experience. I had to run down to queue to buy another jacket because I was only expecting to give one talk and it was just because they couldn't understand what had happened and suddenly I was catapulted into this land like, here, you explain it to us. <laughs> Somebody and has le- like, yeah. a- And it was unbelievable. Like the nation was in shock. Like they couldn't believe that something so violent and so awful had happened in this beautiful country. You know, I, well, because I it's not wanna... as visible, right? The, the lead up to the dramatic event is not as visible to the general public. That's right. Yeah. I mean, unless you're sitting on those forums, yeah. there's no way you would mm-hmm. be expecting that to happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're so active, those forums. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that I speak about a lot. Like, it's really hard to understand why the internet is allowed to, like, why the platforms are allowed mm-hmm. to perpetrate mm-hmm. this stuff. Like, they, you couldn't publish this stuff in a newspaper, it would be against the law. So why platforms are allowed to create spaces that are so unsafe and create violence, essentially, mm-hmm. they are perpetrating mm-hmm. and proliferating mm-hmm. violence, I just can't understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you look at the language too that's used to describe perpetrators of these acts and when they're perpetrated by young angry white men, the language is often quite different to if an act of violence is perpetrated by a person of colour or a yeah. person, person of mixed ethnicity. That's right. Yeah. And often like they don't say a Caucasian man did this, but yeah. they will definitely say a Muslim man did yes. that. Yeah. You know, I so used to know a guy who hated Asians because he was reading that Caucasians were doing everything <laughs> in the newspaper. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are really interesting, uh, very deep-seated biases that we have that go back to the what Australia policy but they're affecting the way that we're dealing with this you know I mean look it's changed a lot since the book came out and since the Christchurch massacre thank goodness and we have seen new legislation recently go through the senate um that is designed to protect adults it still does not call the platforms to account in the way that they should be like it's amazing. That and are these like on Facebook and normal sort of everyday yes. platforms? A lot of it is happening on those places like Reddit I was talking about, which I would consider to be more like darker areas mm-hmm. of the internet, but a lot of it is on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about how these platforms are allowed to operate in the way they do in Australia. They are completely beyond Australian law almost. Like I watched them in those same Senate hearings I was talking about just not answer any of the questions from our elective leaders about how they deal with cyber hate, which I find amazing. So you Mm -hmm. think you're beyond Australian law. And one of the um, submissions to those Senate hearings, it was almost lost, but because I was Mm -hmm. an an investigative journalist, I was pouring through everything. Mm -hmm. So there was a submission from the Northern Territory Police into these cyberbullying hearings 
and they were listing instances that they had been trying to investigate murders and very serious crimes and Facebook had refused to give them the information or data. So they've had to drop murder cases and so forth because they can't get the platforms to give them the data. Like, that's bonkers, right? That we've got international companies operating inside our borders, causing us grave harm mm-hmm. and refusing to cop- cooperate. And collecting mass amounts of yeah. data. Yeah, yeah, and they're making billions of dollars <laughs> from our data. Exactly, Zeta. Like, I just... Should have just offered to buy it for them. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't understand it. Like, imagine if we just let cigarettes kill people and there was no laws around it. It just wouldn't happen. Anyway, I just did for many years. I know. I mean, I just want to combust when I think about that. The thing that I keep goes around in my head a lot, long before trolling was a thing, was when the internet started to become common use for young children, school aged children, and the whole thing of cyberbullying became an epidemic. What did people do before they had platforms like that? You know, like did did cyberbullying or the equivalent of it that would have been offline exist in a form that? was as damaging or have we created this by by providing tech platforms for young people have we created this or is it always been there in another form well i would say a bit of both in that there's a troll in all of us i think Mm. like all of us because of what they call the online disinhibition effect the tool itself lends itself to certain behaviours. So if I can't see you, Scotty, online, I don't care whether I hurt your feelings. I do happen to know you in real life, but let's say I didn't, you know, I it's a it's gamified. So all of us have been tempted to be more aggressive online than they would, we would offline because there's no social contract. So that is a factor. But status existed well before the internet. You know, people used to send hate mail and so forth. It's just that the tool is so powerful. So the tool can connect you to anybody, anywhere, almost instantly. So it has a magnification effect and it connects you. You might have been the only white supremacist sitting in your isolated community somewhere before the internet. Now you can connect to every white supremacist on the planet and share your ideologies and be buoyed by those ideologies and be spurred into action. So, you know, like the Charlottesville riots in the Mm -hmm. States where Heather Hoyer died, that's a classic example of that where people probably who would have been isolated came together and this awful event happened. So, yes, I think, you know, we can't say... there are a lot of damaged mm-hmm. and dangerous individuals mm-hmm. and there always have been. It's just that now they have this incredibly You've powerful given them a great vehicle to Yeah, use. we have. Yeah. I mean, look, the internet has its wondrous a- aspects, but I think it was hugely naive of the creators of the internet to have this ridiculous idea that everybody would use it for the good of humanity. Mm-hmm. Was that I mean, Vint Cerf? So, yeah, Vint Cerf is one of the fathers of the internet. I heard him speak at ANU right towards the end of 2018 when I was writing my manuscript. And I was just blown away by his naivety, actually. Like, brilliant guy. So he actually created the internet. He was one of the people that, you know, um, was sending those packets, they called them, across the Atlantic for the US military. And they made the early internet. This is sort of 60s, 70s, like before the internet as we know it. But he said these things at that Mm -hmm. talk that he created it for the good of humanity. And I was thinking, what the hell was the evidence for that? That Wasn't it for military intelligence initially? It was for military (laughs) intelligence. But they thought that it would give everyone a voice Mm -hmm. and we would all share and care. I mean, 
is that and it the, has but do we want all those voices do we want well to, this is a question yeah, that yeah. like as someone who's very left wing i've i found very confronting mm-hmm. for myself which is like do you actually want people like mark who go out to kill people mm-hmm. is a genuine psychopath do you actually want mm-hmm. him to have a voice that's equal mm-hmm. to everybody mm-hmm. else's because he's not going to use it for so the then good it's of a duty of care thing right yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting question. Like, would you want to put a machine gun in the hands of everyone? Probably not. So, yeah, these are really mm-hmm. complicated mm-hmm. questions about democracy and free speech, mm-hmm. which we are only starting to grapple with probably 30 years too late. Mm-hmm. So I think there was some discussion, and you were involved in it, as whether or not the inter- internet should be as free as it is or whether it should be more policed and yeah. structured. And, I mean, there's this idea that the internet has to be free and we don't want to curb free speech on the internet, which is absolutely ludicrous mm-hmm. because... In your everyday life, you don't have absolute free speech. Like you can't get on this radio show and perpetrate hate speech because you'd be arrested. You can't sexually harass me at work or bully me. You can't threaten me in the supermarket. So why the hell should you be able to do it on the internet? Like we have rules in civil society, but for some reason we're hugely resistant to doing it online and that's ideological. There's no reason why the internet should be absolute free speech because it ends up, what ends up actually happening is you're curbing the free speech of minorities. So these guys say they need absolute free speech, but it's always the people whose voice is the most free that want free speech the most. So it's always these young, white, angry men who have this privileged place in society, arguably, and they're attacking women, people of colour, LGBTI people. You know, these are the minorities that are getting driven off the internet. So is that free speech? Like when I tried to say to them, Weave, who's one of the most powerful kind of trolls and the most dangerous neo-Nazi, I said to him, you're actually curbing other people's free speech. He just got completely livid Mm. and furious, like abusive, because he actually didn't really have an answer to that. Mm, Yeah, I mean, freedoms come with responsibilities. They're the two sides Mm. of the same coin. And Mm. if you want freedom for yourself, you need to have freedom for others. Yeah. yeah. But that's not what it's really about. We know it's... You know, it's not. It's, it's a very skewed lens they're looking through. Absolutely. They're not trying to give freedom to people they don't agree with. <laughs> they're trying to actually stop you speaking. They're trying to drive you people that they don't agree with off the internet. So, yeah, it's a really interesting human rights, kind of civil rights question, isn't it? Which brings us to another arena where I think probably is maybe the father of all trolling, the political arena. <laughs> now, we yes. said, where did it exist before the internet? Well, I think it existed in well, the Senate yes. from the year dot. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Parliament, you know, the behaviour in there is an abomination. So, yes, definitely. It's like IRL trolling, isn't it? And it's probably, we we witnessed that. This is where I think, you know, when you've got this enabling culture of where trolling has become so powerful, it's not only just people going online and being parented by the internet. They're witnessing it on our 7 o'clock news, you know. They're witnessing women being abused and that being enabled by the people that are supposed to be our role models. And if you look at, like, Andrew Lamming, recently Mm -hmm. we saw Andrew Lamming MP Mm -hmm. being very abusive (laughs) and effectively trolling people in his community. Mm -hmm. And I was interviewed quite a bit about that because we need to think really hard what does that mean. So he is essentially greenlighting misogynistic and predatory behaviour and that is a dog whistle. Mm -hmm. So when our leaders 
behave mm-hmm. like this, those angry young men and others take it as a green light for that behaviour. This is okay and I'm going to do it too, mm. particularly Trump. So the trolls, for example, loved that Trump lied all the time and they would then take that as a green light to and lie. And they celebrated his, you know, um, accusations of having abused women. Yes, absolutely. They saw so that as equality. That's right. So, I mean, these are questions about parliamentary standards, which we're <laughs> talking a lot about in the news at the moment, but also about who are we choosing to represent us like, I don't think that someone who is a troll-in-chief like Andrew Lemming and mm. is bullying and misogynistic mm. should be in a position like that. Mm. Because, like I said earlier, these behaviours lead to real-life harm. So the people that he did that to had serious real-life mental health, physical implications from that behaviour. It's not a minor thing. Mm. But you look so at ahead, you look at where uh, where Parliament came from, and you know you've got royals who are uh, you know ordained by God to rule the whole country, and then a bunch of lords who are sort of toadying up to them, and you know they managed to grab a bit of power off the king and form the Parliament, and then they created the corporation and they wrote all the laws, and like a whole institutional structure of society is made by people who are. A little, bit, a, a little bit off the rails, I reckon. And, yes. you know, you, you might call it narcissistic, you might call it psychopathic, who knows, depends on the level, I guess. But, yeah, can we be too surprised? No, I don't think so. And, I mean, these are also questions about who can survive in the environment in Parliament. Like mm. we've seen since Brittany Higgins came out and all these allegations against Christian Porter. <laughs> like what is the culture inside those organisations? Like I tweeted at one point, like, because I know so many mm. female politicians who've been driven out of their jobs through cyber, extreme mm. cyber hate mm. now and a lot of them contact me mm. um, or at least that's been a huge contributing factor so someone like Julia Banks, I know someone like Gabe Brockman, like Sarah Hansen Young, all these women get extreme cyber hate. You know, it's very hard to survive as a decent human being in those places. So we are creating or allowing a culture where you have to almost be a sociopath to survive mm-hmm. in there. And then we're amazed about the policies mm-hmm. that um, these people bring in and also uh, the sorts of the character of the people in there. Mm. You know, these questions are really important about the way that whole system works. I mean, you're right, Scotty. It needs to almost be blown up and start again. Well, Scotty's got the solution to that, but we haven't got enough oh. time to really go into oh. it. You can, <laughs> a whole you can, other show. Yeah. It's Great, building co- cooperatives <laughs> instead of yeah, what we yes. have right now. Anyway, we'll, yeah, that is a whole other show. we have to redesign the way we organise ourselves so that <laughs> it's psychopath-proof. <laughs> but because... You know, we always have so much to ask and so little time to ask yes. it in. Um, we do have uh, some listener questions that came in. We oh, have an international great. listening audience. We've oh, had great. a couple of questions that have come in from overseas, one from Canada. And this one is from a lady in Vancouver. And she says, uh, my daughter wants to be like Christine Anampour, and I believe she's a prominent journalist in Canada. And she says, I worry what she may have to face. What advice would you give to young women who would like to pursue a career in media and journalism? Look, the news is not actually very good on this front. All this work is coming out from the United Nations and UNESCO at the moment in regards to essentially female journalists 
being attacked to the extent where it's a democratic threat. So this is a very terrifying area Mm. and it is worrying. Um, At this point, I would say we need female journalists, uh, but forewarned is forearmed. So know what's out there, uh, know what resources are available Mm. to you and be able to recognise what cyber hate Mm. is and the threats that exist and also know how to report Mm. so report to the platforms and to law enforcement Mm. because as a female journalist I can almost Mm. guarantee if you're reporting on anything controversial this is going to come your way 100 Mm. percent sorry I don't have a more happy answer but I I do think you had some great solutions for your own situation that you were able to uh, turn the tables a little bit on some of your trolls there was one where they were calling you all sorts of horrific things and you said (laughs) I'll let you answer that question look I don't advocate responding in one way or another because it really depends on people's individual situations and their mental health and so Mm -hmm. forth so um, but uh, yeah I did use a technique that Mm -hmm. academic Susan Carlin taught me which is to use humor Um, so when people would troll me and say you're a stupid dog face slut or whatever I would then Mm -hmm. screenshot it and say you know Frank thinks I'm a stupid dog face slut am I (laughs) buy my book and find out and it was very funny because like it was taking the power back it helped sell my book which is the opposite of what they wanted and people loved it because they don't want you taking it lightly they want you to feel scared and upset so that is a powerful tool but it depends on the situation because obviously you can't do that if your life's under threat so you have to be really careful about which technique you're using I have created we won't have time to go into it now but i have created a whole bystander technique which really works about it's very similar to kids um upstanding in the playground and intervening and i use that technique all the time online and it really works it's where you basically get a whole cohort of people to come in and support the victim and to amplify them and it's amazing but you can't do that yourself as a victim you know victims can't solve this by themselves they need upstanding interventions you need solidarity in other words you need solidarity Yeah, Yeah. yeah and the other question we have is um having gone through what you've gone through and now are the expert on trolling <laughs> online. No, it's so serious. Um, <laughs> being armed with what you know now, if you could go back and do it again, what would you do differently? I mean, the thing is, I've got to be clear, like these guys had no criminal record and I just, you know, the police had never heard of them. So it'd be very difficult to report that story differently. <laughs> Look, I don't know what the answer to that is because the thing is the structures are still not in place to keep us safe. Like the platforms don't keep us safe. What I would want if I had a magic wand is legislation that forced a duty of care. So those platforms had to keep us safe. Otherwise, they couldn't have their products on the market. That is what I would want. And I would also want legislation that broke up the monopoly of these companies because they are too big and too powerful. That's what I would do if I was, like, in charge of the world and had a magic (laughs) wand. But in terms of my own behaviour, probably there isn't that much. It would be Davos, according to Ginger. (laughs) (laughs) No, that would be amazing. And, yes. and that, I think that's where a lot of people feel angry is that there is no accountability and for these great conglomerates. No, and the cops also mm. don't. It's mm. not really their fault. They're not educated or resourced mm. to the extent that we'd want them to be. But, yeah, mm. I would want much better training and resourcing mm. for them. And we're almost out of time here. So yes. I just wanted to quickly touch on a, um, a wonderful thing you've got going here with Sue White. It's oh, Media yes. Boot Camp. Oh, so yes. for those of us aspiring journalists <laughs> or people who would like to um, fine-tune some things, what, what is Media Boot the, Camp? Me- 
media boot camp is we actually teach people to speak in public in all sorts of different ways. So that's our business and we teach people to give great talks, do really well in media interviews, you know, I'm sick of looking at people's noses on Zoom and seeing their nostril hairs. So uh, we teach people how to present on Zoom. And the other thing I'd say is if we're just about out of time, please check out Broad Agenda. I've just become editor of Broad Agenda. It's a gender-based platform at the University of Canberra and we're publishing all kinds of great stuff all the time. And, uh, yeah, I really encourage you to go check out that out. I've just put a big story up with Jess Hill. Uh, she is, of course, award-winning investigative journalist. She's got an amazing new podcast out about domestic abuse called The mm. Trap. So I did an exclusive mm-hmm. Q&A with her that we've just posted. Check Wonderful. It out. <laughs> and if people wanted to follow you on social media to get in touch, uh, to buy your book, where can they do all of those you things? You can find me anywhere. I'm everywhere. Just yeah. um, at Ginger Gorman yeah. on Twitter. So, yeah, hit me up. If you just search for Ginger Gorman or Ginger Gorman trolling, honestly, I'm everywhere. And I love hearing from people. I loved getting the picture of your cat with my book as well. Yes, my cat, my cat was really reading that in one sitting. Great. Smart cat. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ginger. It's been a real pleasure to have you. I wish we had a whole extra hour. You probably don't because your parking's going to run out. (laughs) Thank you so much, Zena and Scotty. What a pleasure. Thank you. And that was Ginger Gorman joining us, the author of Troll Hunting. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.